Welcome to the Environmental Extremes Global Engagement Journal Club, brought to you in collaboration by the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory at the University of Sydney and the Research Connection Innovation Fund at the University of South Australia. The show is hosted by Associate Professor Ollie Jay and Dr. Samuel Chalmers. Okay, so it's my uh, pleasure to be sat here online with two very important researchers in the field of heat stroke prevention and treatment. First of all, there's uh, the director of the Corey Stringer Institute, which is uh, Professor Douglas Kasser from the University of Connecticut. Doug, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. And secondly, we have Dr. Yuri Hosokawa, who is based in Japan. Uh, she's um, very involved in the Tokyo Games right now. So we really appreciate you taking the time, Yuri, to join us uh, today. So we're well, welcome. Well, thank you for having me too. Great. So um, we had two papers that we asked for questions on. Uh, the first one was um, led by uh, De Martini, who's a former PhD student of Doug's. And that was titled Effectiveness of Cold Water Immersion in the Treatment of Exertional Heat Stroke at the Falmouth Road Race. And that was published in Medicine, Science, Sports and Exercise back in 2015. So we received a bunch of questions around that paper, which we'll try to get through as many as possible. And then the second paper uh, was led by Yuri, and uh, that was entitled TARP-Assisted Cooling as a Method for Whole-Body Cooling in Hypothermic Individuals. And that was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2017, and we received quite a few questions around that as well. So uh, before we kind of go any further, maybe we can just have a quick kind of um, description of um, your, your, your journey into this area of research and um, uh, you know, kind of what's led to you being where you are now. So maybe, you, Doug, if you don't mind, can we start off with you? Maybe just give us a, a quick uh, run over of your, of your background and how you ended up doing what you're doing now. Absolutely, yes. Um, so my journey started back when I was 16 years old, um, 1985. So yes, I am that old. Um, I was uh, running a 10K race on the track in upstate New York, um, in the United States, and uh, it's called the Empire State Games, and they do like an Olympic-style festival for high school athletes. So they do all the Olympic events, or almost all the Olympic events, and you have to qualify out of your region. And it had been a dream of mine to qualify for this race um, for all the years. I tried qualifying after eighth grade, after ninth grade, after tenth grade, after eleventh grade, which was my last chance to qualify. And I qualified in the 10K, representing Long Island. And they decided to run the 10K race at noontime on the track and they're running the 100 and 200 meters at night under the lights. So no risk of heat stroke and it's cool under the lights, but they run the 10K at noon. Um, so I ran 24 laps, bell lap happens. I'm uh, positioned um, for a chance at a medal, 200 meters to go. I collapsed, get right back up because I didn't know what the heck happened, ran the final turn. And then I collapsed again and I was in a coma for six hours after. Obviously realized later that I'd suffered an exertional heat stroke, was super fortunate that the athletic trainer on site knew it was a heat stroke right away, started aggressive cooling, the EMS was there. And then amazingly, the ER doc had had um, worked heat strokes during the Vietnam War for the US military and had me in a ice tub in a hospital in 1985, um, which is very obviously uncommon at that time or even as uncommon at this time in a hospital. Um, so 1985, August 8th from 36 years later, basically that's all I've been focused on and interested in all the days that have taken place since then. Um, big milestone for us was in 2010, the Corey Stringer Institute opened. Um, he was an American football player who passed away from heat stroke, the only American football player to ever die during a practice conditioning session or, or a game um, in the NFL at the pro levels here in America. And I assisted his widow and his agent as a expert witness during some of their legal proceedings. And then in, um, they asked me if I'd want to host a lasting legacy for Corey. And we started with three people back in 2010, and now we have 85 people, um, 20-something staff and 60-something volunteers. And we focus on trying to enhance safety for the laborer, warfighter, and athletes um, when it comes to um, preventing sudden death or um, safety and performance during intense exercise in the heat. And Yuri, who's with us here today, was um, one of our very important um, staff members for a very long time until she uh, went back to Japan um, a couple years ago. Tremendous. Thanks for that uh, quick journey there, Doug. And Yuri, um, so you worked at KSI. What led you to KSI in the first place? Yeah, so my journey, I was born and raised in Japan, and I had a, this special interest in athletic training. So for me to pursue that as a profession, my really only choice was to move to US to study that. So for my master's degree, 
I went to University of Arkansas to finish my um, degree. And also I applied for a licensure and certification test for athletic training, um, board certified certification athletic trainer. Um, and while I was there, I met Dr. Brandon McDermott, who was actually um, Doug's first PhD student, is that correct? Or second PhD student. Um, and he was my one of my supervisors at Arkansas. And when I was talking to him about, you know, what should I do after I finish my master's degree? You know, should I just go home and pursue my career in Japan? Or, you know, I had this special um, interest in preventing sudden death. And I mentioned that to Brendan and he goes, why don't you call Doug? And to me, it was the Douglas Casa. Um, so I had no idea what he meant by call Doug at UConn. And I was like, oh, why would I even able to do that? Like, how would I have contact to him? And he goes, oh, he's my friend. You know, he's my mentor and he, he, he's a good person. So just call him and say that you're interested in preventing sudden death and you might be a good candidate for a PhD student. And so I did, I called up and Doug goes, well, come to UConn, let's do an interview. And then just like that, um, in the summer of 2013, I think, that was when I uh, moved to Connecticut and started my PhD. So what struck me the most was living in Japan, heat related illness is a common thing. You know, everybody knows about it. It happens every year. It's so common to the point that no one really thinks serious about it because we all know that it happens and it's something that almost feels like inevitable uh, but when i learned that you know exertional heat stroke can be deadly and that that could also be prevented if treated properly on site that was like a a crazy thought to me for someone who lived in japan for a long time thinking that well you know these deaths was you know we thought that it was inevitable to some extent but knowing that it's now 100 percent preventable you know that really fired my passion to study about this and disseminate this information back home so that you know what ksi had done in the us now i can replicate that to japan so i'm currently in the process of doing that and you know as you mentioned yeah tokyo 2020 has been a good um, opportunity for that right now so uh, can you briefly just describe to us um your role um in the in the tokyo games at the moment um sure so for tokyo 2020 i am um, serving as an advisor for the japanese organizing committee so they had asked me to be the liaison between ioc um, and the japanese medical volunteers um, to implement pre-hospital management for exertional heat stroke care because uh, because in japan our medical network system is pretty good that we directly transport um, exertional heat stroke patients to the hospital. But that, you know, 20, 30 minutes could even be a delay for, you know, better survivability or less sequela. So for Tokyo 2020, for the first time in Japan, we've decided to implement cool first transport second, meaning that we have we would have ice bath um, on site at the venue for high risk events and that we would be you know, doing the treatment on site and then transport. So since this concept was such a new thing for our medical community, I'm in charge of implementing that right now. Yeah, that's tremendous. And it's, and it's a clear demonstration of uh, translating research findings to to practice, which is must be very satisfying for, for, you, for you both collectively. A lot of the questions that I get around about heat stroke management uh, or heat stroke prevention um, and treatment often focuses on what should you do first? And I always reference your work, Doug, and colleagues, um, particularly, and, and the analogy I think that really resonated with me, and I, th I think this is either yourself, Doug, or one of one of your trainees, um, kind of drew a parallel to the type of scenario where uh, you might be treating somebody with a, um, a, a, a sudden cardiac event. And, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, what we're always told is that the longer you leave it, you need to apply CPR as quick as possible. The sooner you treat them, the more chances of the survival that they have. And that really resonated with me in this same kind of sense with exertional heat illness, is that if somebody's experienced or suspected of having heat stroke, if the sooner that you apply this aggressive cooling, uh, the, the, the higher the chances of survival. Is that, is that correct, Doug? That is correct. You are relaying great information to people. That's good. There's no question that the evidence just strongly shows that if you can get their temp under 104 within 30 minutes of the heat stroke presenting itself, that so far, based on every piece of data that we've ever had available to us, that um, there's been 100% survivability in that particular scenario. And so obviously- Just, the, just, to, just to clarify, Doug, 104 Fahrenheit yeah. is 42 degrees Celsius for our international- No, 40.0. 40, 40 oh, 
Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> I need to go back to uh, math school, don't I? Yeah, I think 42 is like 108, but someone can correct me. But yeah, 40.0 is 104. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it just shows like what Yuri just mentioned, what the value of the on-site cooling and really how critical it is because you're basically giving up that free pass. Like the 30-minute window is your free pass to surviving without long-term complications. And if you don't do the on-site cooling, now you're entering, like now you're becoming a gambler, right? Because now you might survive, it might turn out okay, but now there's a good chance it, it might not. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just did a quick math, you're, you're right. <laughs> One, 104 minus 32 divided by 1.8 is 40, so yeah. Um, <laughs> but thanks for clarifying. I was gonna say it's too early for yeah, you, yeah. but I don't even know what's <laughs> No, it's too late but... maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very good, yeah. So th th this, is, this is really important stuff. Um, so you know, let's get into some of the some of the questions. Um, we'll we'll probably start with Doug's paper first. But again, Yuri, it'd be great to have your input on on some of this as well. Probably the first one I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to, Doug, if you don't mind, is you present very impressive data in in, in the paper with respect to the survival rate of of the 274 patients that you treated. So um, there were zero deaths and a very low rate of hospitalization. So just so we can help understand what those numbers mean, because, you know, as raw numbers, they're obviously very impressive. But can you give us an idea of um, in an era in before um, this type of rapid aggressive treatment um, where there wasn't as much attention paid to it? Do we have kind of any kind of notion of what the hospitalization could potentially be? and or what the um, the fatality rate could be um, if it wasn't for these interventions that you're applying in a very rapid and systematic fashion? It's a good question. We I don't know if we have like that specific data um, of, of that kind of volume of people where who were not treated correctly. Um, and I think another huge factor we have to consider as we do these discussions is that a lot of times when people aren't treated correctly, um, they'll survive the incident, but they'll have either long-term or potentially permanent complications. Um, so they may end up surviving, but then they, you know, mentally compromised or they have um, a liver transplant or kidney dialysis, or they have other issues related to the, um, you know, the extended time of hyperthermia that affects, you know, one or more organs in their body. So we have to keep that in the back of our mind. Um, but I don't have specific data, like with this kind of volume, um, most people would have been sent, um, you know, directly to hospitals, but this particular Falmouth road race is in a very small community at the hospital only could handle like four, maybe four or five patients at a time. So years ago, when this race started, they realized that they had to have an aggressive, um, you know, medical care on site. So it was a bit of serendipity that they knew that they, they had to do it on site. Um, so they have like 25 immersion tubs set up at the race, um, you know, in a massive medical tent. And just so the listeners know, Yuri was in charge of research for us at Falmouth Road Race for like a four or five year stretch. So she's also extremely familiar, even though she's not technically an author on this paper, she's an author on many other papers that we had that have come out of the Falmouth Road Race. Right. So, so Yuri, with respect to that then, in terms of the um, type of practical um, barriers that you had to overcome when implementing this work at this particular race. So it, it sounds like it's quite a, is it quite a rural, rural area, is it? Is, is it relatively remote? Um, is, is, that, is that one of the challenges? Yeah, I mean, as Doug said, uh, Falmouth in particular, it's, a, it's more of a vacation city. You know, people gather during the summertime. So in terms of local medical facility and the capacity, it's, it's, not, th it's not that comparable to say like Boston Marathon. So like J Doug said, you know, for that particular day, they were expecting many injuries from the spectators and also the runners themselves. So for them to not overwhelm the medical system, it kind of uh, worked um, in, you know, in favor for exertional heat stroke care, actually, that they were proactive enough to have as much medical care possible before they are admitted to the hospital so that they're not overwhelming the system to begin with. Um, and the additional kind of background for a Falmouth road race is that it's only it's only 11k, you know, or so in distance, but yet we have so many exertional heat stroke. And that is also a very unique aspect because all these people, you know, this not it's not I mean, we would have some elite runners, but mostly they are recreationally competitive runners. And for them, 11k is those that distance specific distance that they could overexert themselves, they feel good, and they want to get to that final, you know, stretch that they want to push themselves. And that I think that nuance of, you know, the course and how it's laid out, um, the time of the year is always third week about third weekend of August, you know, all that 
kind of together, um, it turned out to be a great field study location for exertional heat stroke that we're learning so much about it. But at the same time, with given that much of a high risk, Falmouth Road Race is proactive enough that they've implemented every single measure that they could implement to make sure we don't have any casualties, per se. So it sounds yeah, like this, Ollie, this, just so you can, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, just to give you an idea, they average 15 to 20 heat strokes per year, which is like almost unheard of, in, at least in our races in America. It's one of, I think, two or three of the races with the highest incident. There's only 12,000 people in the race, so the incidence is like one in whatever that ends up being, six, 700 people, we have a heat stroke, which is a really high incident because if the major marathons that are more in the fall or spring, you know the incidence might be like one in 10,000 might have a heat stroke or one in 5,000 or something like that. Um, so it's a big deal. Um, as Yuri just mentioned, it used to be the second week, second Sunday in August. Now it's the third. It used to start at noontime. Um, and now it's back at eight o'clock. Um, but still, um, you know, just when you're running a race in August, right along the water, the humidity is, you know, just traditionally quite high. Um, and the, the heat is usually always at least decent, even though the start's at eight o'clock. Yeah, it sounds like it's, it's kind of a bit of a perfect storm, this race. So you've got a distance that, um, you know, if you, everyone's going to be in pretty decent shape, I guess, but they kind of, you're really going to go for it if it's a 10 or 11K race. So metabolic rates of metabolic heat production are really high. If they're not necessarily elite, elite runners, then maybe some of the conditioning uh, vulnerabilities are there. Plus it's humid, plus it's hot. Yeah, it's, 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 it sounds like, a, yeah, the perfect storm for these type of – well, clearly it is because if you have 15, 20 yeah. instances. Um, and, it's, it's, and it's part of their vacation too. You know, they're there to have fun. So not necessarily that they might be fully ready, but they're just going to go for it. And we've seen that a lot, you know. Um, they're not all fully sober at the start, let me tell you. Well, I, I, this is one of the questions I have, right, is um, so do you think that um, – uh, the hydration status of some of these uh, competitors might not be what it should be at the start. And, and, and in fact, in all seriousness, is there any kind of signals that kind of crop up among the individuals that generally present themselves with an exertional heat illness um, with respect to their, their preparation and their behavior? Yeah, you want to mention about any of the hydration um, things um, just from our research we've done? Sure. So Falmouth, well, so our... Um some of the studies I've done, um, observational studies of runners and you know, are leading up to the race, how, how they were ready and so forth. Those individuals who are, you know, sign up themselves to be part of the study, they're usually good because they're conscious and they're interested enough in physiology that they're prepared. So if you look into the urine color and specific gravity, they're usually within the hydration status. Um, but Anecdotally, you know, I've done a surveillance study, um, look, listening to them about, you know, how do you prep and what are some of your plans for leading up to the race. And not everyone, you know, has say, I carry a water bottle prior to the race or, you know, their hydration plan for the race. Since it's only 11K, not everyone is um, keen enough to, you know, hydrate as needed. They're just going to go push for it. So that type of behavioral decisions, you know, given that layperson might be in the race as well. Um, there are a lot of variability to that, but given the study subject per se, you know, there, I think we're biased on that because they're super interested in this stuff. So those people in particular were good. Yeah. So actually, so th this, this kind of leads me on to the next question that I'd like to kind of just touch on Doug. Um, and it was part of your presentation, but I, I, and it relates to this particular paper, but you also were good enough to summarize some of the other papers that have, have come out of your lab you know, in the years that followed this particular paper in 2015. And one thing that really struck me was the one, I think Rebecca Stearns was the lead author in 2020. And you were reporting the people who have recurrent heat stroke experiences. I just can't get my head around this. So, so you've got people that would come along, they would run this race, they would experience heat stroke, they would then be treated, they would then go away, and then the next year they'd come back, they'd run the same race, and they get heat stroke again, and then some people did it like four years in a row. I mean, these people must be out of the, off their heads, you know. Um, can, can we talk, talk – well, just a couple of questions around that. So first of all, what are these people thinking? That's <laughs> the first thing. And then the second thing is, is you know, so the, the diagnosis. Can we talk about the process that you guys take to systematically diagnose somebody as having an exertional heat stroke, I guess you would call it, right? Um, and does that diagnosis differ from – a clinical definition of heat stroke, given how 
clinical heat stroke can be deadly, of course. And um, especially if we were looking at, we did our, our previous uh, session of, of this um, Journal Club podcast uh, with um, Lisa Leon and Orlando Latano, um, where we were talking about the mechanistic what they do, looking at gut per- increases in gut permeability and, and, and the cascade of, of very serious um, uh, uh, events that happen downstream of, of this initial heat stroke. Can we talk a bit more about the, the diagnosis? And um... Good question. Yeah, especially for my work I do at Falmouth and other road races, I'm, I, I'm in charge of the like, triage area at Falmouth. So when people come in, I've been doing this for over 20 years, um, when people come in who they either come in on a wheelchair or they may be staggering near the finish line or someone's carrying them in, um, we, um, obviously, we always kind of assume heat stroke until proven otherwise, right? Because we don't want to lose... Um, the critical time for cooling somebody. So um, if we see any indication of CNS dysfunction um, or um, we really suspect that they're severely hypothermic, we're doing a rectal temperature right away. I mean, we're doing it on, if there's any chance whatsoever, we're going to do a rectal temperature because we don't want to miss any cases. So then we make the decision then based on the CNS dysfunction and the, the temperature after we get it, if we're dealing with a heat exhaustion or a heat stroke, if it's an exertional heat stroke within one minute after their temperature getting done, they're in one of the 20 immersion tubs that are within, you know, 50 feet of us at that point. If it's a heat exhaustion, um, we have cots set up where they'll get rotating um, cold, wet towels placed on their whole, um, you know, body surface area and have their feet propped and we'll have other medical staff caring for them, but not consume um, the space in our immersion tubs um, right at that moment. So it's, it is fast. We've, We've often kitted with people that if you come in the Falmouth road race and you've like sprained your ankle, like you don't want to come into the the heat triage area because you're going to get your rectal temperature done. Um, because, you know, so, so you're just, we just, it's, it's obviously a massive precaution, um, you know, but we don't want to miss um, any of the heat show cases. And we're very proud in the 40 something years of Falmouth road race that any person who's entered the medical tent, um, we have not had anyone pass away from heat stroke. Yeah, that's really important. Um, so just so I just unpack that a little bit. So um, if you have somebody that's approaching the finishing line, let's say, and they're clearly demonstrating CNS dysfunction, it's hot. Um, they've just run an 11, almost completed an 11 kilometer race. Can you just talk us through the necessity to measure their rectal temperature in these individuals or just their core temperature generally? Um, obviously, rectal temperatures are a far better way of doing it for obvious reasons. Are there the, the spaces for treating people who would truly have heat stroke so limited is that it's about resources and, it, and it's about directing people to the appropriate level of care because there's a finite amount of resources available? Yeah, that's very much largely the, what's happening right now because you have like say 20, 25 tubs. And as you know, there's going to be thousands of people who are suffering from exercise induced hyperthermia, but they're not having a heat illness, right? Because they just ran 11K race and we have 12,000 in the race. Um, so we have to identify, you know, who needs the immersion tubs. And then each immersion tub has a staff of three or four medical professionals dealing with those people. Because keep in mind, some might be combative. Um, and some might need additional care, you know, so we have three or four people at each station, we have 20 stations, you know, it's a big medical team. And then we have another, you know, 20 or 30 cots set up for the heat exhaustion people. Um, so um, anytime, you know, people seem like that, it's more than just, just being hot, and they've just run a race, and they're really tired, if it's beyond just really tired, um, and something else seems off, um, you know, we have medical staff out near the finish line that those people then are brought to us, um, and we, you know, kind of make sure um, if they are okay, that's fine. And if they're not, we get them into medical care. So, so I'm just thinking that, that, sorry, Gary, go ahead. Oh, no, I just wanted to add one more about the rectal temperature. So I get that exact question, Ollie, that you just asked to us in Japan, because now they're introduced to this whole concept. And one of the things that they're so apprehensive about was why do we have to take rectal temperature? Because it's uncomfortable, you know, for both patient and the practitioner. Um, And one of the other reasons that I say um, to answer that question is we need to know when to stop the treatment. We never start any treatment without knowing when that could be ended. And for cold water immersion tub, we end that uh, cooling point is 39.0 degrees Celsius. So, you know, and we use the overshoot, hyperthermic overshoot to cool them after to the normal thermic range. But that 39.0, if we miss that, we also have the potential for exercise, uh, potential for hypothermia, which can be a little bit harder for us to manage um, pre-hospitally. 
So for our priority is get them away from that hyperthermic state, the dangerous hyperthermic state to conserve their organs. But at the same time, we need to be conscious for not doing over um, cooling because again, you know, trying to reheat the person out of the hospital without taking the critical vital signs is that is much harder to our yeah. to in my opinion so there is also that reason too so that's that's a really important point and so it's not just for diagnosis it's also for monitoring of the actual treatment itself and i think maybe people miss that because they probably think that you're just doing a quick temperature measurement and then it's withdrawn but actually it stays in there because you need to monitor the efficacy of of, of the treatment that you're that you're providing exactly yes. It provides, it helps us be very precise with um, when we're taking them out of the tub, but their cooling rates during it. And then also at the, not common at Falmouth because it's shorter, but in the longer races, as you know, hyponatremia could be an important risk. And that also could cause CNS dysfunction. So this is, um, if you can get a blood sodium on site and you get a body temperature, you can very quickly figure out if you're dealing with a hyponatremia or a heat stroke case. Right. And the treatment's obviously entirely different, right? So Exactly. Um... Yeah, yeah, very, very, very important information, I think, for our listeners. Um, yeah, I was actually gonna, I was gonna ask an, another question. So Doug and Yuri as well, so you guys have got a lot of experience of doing this type of work. In terms of when you actually take a measurement and your your judgment of it, how often do they not align? Or is your visual diagnosis pretty well honed nowadays, based on your experience? It must be, right? I've personally treated 325 so far in my career heat strokes during different road races and sporting events. So yeah, so now when I, I see people, I think I notice, and that's 325 heat strokes, and then there's a, at least that many and probably more heat exhaustion cases. So I've, sure. I get to yeah. see the differences, the presentations between those two. So there's a lot of subtle things that I, I look for when people first come in um, that people I think takes maybe a little bit more experience to notice, um, um, you know, that just comes with a lot of experience. And I I do think that we're very close to being precise, but some people will trick you. Some people, the CNS function might seem close to really normal, and then you'll do a temp and it's 108 or 109. I've had a 112 at Falmouth, but we might have someone who's 108 or 109, seems somewhat close to normal, but then five or 10 minutes later, they're completely out of it. And so getting the quick temperature after the race um, also helps us even you know maximize those cooling minutes. I did the maths, uh, uh, Doug. And uh, one twelve. You said one twelve. Yes. One twelve is forty four degrees Celsius. Yeah, that's the highest I've had. I've had a one twelve, a two one eleven, some one tens, and then the the average starting heat stroke temperature is one oh eight, which I believe is around forty two degrees Celsius. That's the yeah. kind of the average starting temp for our, right. you know, over four hundred people now that we've had on record because we just published a, another paper that was a follow up to the paper that we're all discussing right now of another yeah. hundred and something heat strokes. Just to clarify, the person with the 112, that person survived? She was totally fine. She, 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 her observation, she spent a night in the hospital, but she went home the next morning. She had super rapid cooling um, and she uh, did okay. Amazing, amazing. So actually, so that brings me to my next question. Well, not something I'd say my question, the question that we received. Um, in your talk, Doug, you were talking about cellular damage potentially happening at particular temperatures. And I think one of them, was equivalent. I think the the, um, the the listener who sent in their question uh, had it at just below forty one degrees Celsius. But we do know, of course, as you've just described, there is that there, there are instances of individuals who present with much higher local tissue temperatures in their in their body core and do not suffer, you know, this these catastrophic uh, health effects. Can you maybe uh, both of you um, give give us some kind of idea as to what type of protective mechanisms you think are in place that enable some people to experience and survive much higher core temperatures are the ones that could be deadly for, for other people? Yeah, I can start quick, Yuri, if then you can add in. But um, yeah, that we often use the term like critical threshold for cell, cell damage. So you had just noted, um, I think it is right around 41. We often say it's around 105.5 degrees um, Fahrenheit, which I believe is super close to what you just said. Um, and some of this comes back from Harvard, Dr. Hubbard, who used to work at the United States Army Research Institute for Environmental Medicine, and obviously did this work with animal models because he was looking at very specific temperatures and the amount of minutes that they were above that temperature and what the potential outcome would be. When I had a sabbatical once at the same facility he used to work with, I actually did part of my sabbatical with Dr. Lisa Leon, who was one of your recent guests. 
um, I redid one of his tables and made a figure out of it um, to make it a little more kind of visual for the person to see um, what the potential outcome is based on the number of minutes above that critical threshold. And you can see, you know, the precipitous drop as the number of minutes increase above that temperature, the survivability um, dramatically drops. Um, and so that was kind of a, I think a, a big moment. We published, I published that in MedSci back in 2010, the rewrite of that when I co-authored an article about cooling. Um, but anyway, it was, so I think that's an important understanding and it kind of sets the stage of why we're trying to cool so fast because for whatever reason with humans that was an animal model and they have some deaths um you know when it's even under the 30 minute window but for some reason in humans we have not had deaths when the minutes are kept under 30. Um, so there seems to be some kind of obviously protective mechanism to withstand a small amount of time of extreme hyperthermia so that to me is super fascinating but you want to add on yuri yeah so for exertional heat stroke in particular, you know, hyperthermia is not the only factor that leads to this catastrophic outcome. I think it has to do with the cascades of, you know, vast majority, you know, inflammatory process that happens in cellular level to organ damage level and, you know, in multiple area um, um, of your body. So this is just me speaking hypothetically, but, you know, why do we see someone who can withstand hyperthermia for a certain amount of duration without no, um, you know, medical attention? Is that maybe you know, especially those elite athletes who, who will be competing in Tokyo twenty twenty as well, their internal body temperature will exceed forty one degrees for a brief time of period, and they they are fine. Um, but I think it's because they have that protective mechanism within their cellular inflammatory kind of process where they could withstand that for a little bit, little bit of time versus someone who might be collapsed and have a deadly outcome, you know, even after say 40.5 degrees Celsius for that temperature, they might be also having an underlying inflammatory response that is kind of over um, reaching to their capacity to withstand the whole body kind of reaction, not just the temperature response per se. Um, Cause I have a feeling that, you know, if you're trained enough and if you're hydrated and if you have all these other factors, if you ha have those as a negative factor, meaning that it's a risk factor, then you collapse exertional heat stroke fast versus if you pre prepare yourself to minimize that number of, you know, these different factors, I have a feeling that the person can at a certain, to a certain point, I think people can withstand that, such as those that we see in elite athletes. So these type of um, processes, these adaptations that uh, might take place in, in individuals who are highly trained and, and, and well prepared for these type of conditions, particularly if they're heat acclimated or heat acclimatized, um, it, 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 these type of protective mechanisms, are you talking about things like chaperone cells and um, heat shock proteins and things like that, which enable cells to... Um, withstand a, a greater thermal insult for a longer period of time before we see um, uh, cellular damage? Is, is, is that, is that what Yeah, exactly. And that pathway is not specific to, you know, temperature stress, you know, it, it could come from dehydration, it could come from, you know, oxidative stress. And so it's not, you know, specific to temperature per se. So I have a feeling that there might be some overlap. And, you know, there's a certain capacity that the person can withstand and the capacity could change depending on your trainability and training status but again this is all hypothetical <laughs> sure and of course gut permeability is such an important part of the, the the main kind of serious process that occurs in in heat stroke victims so uh, it would make sense if there was interplay between those particular mechanisms for sure so if if we then kind of move on to the next question and i'll ask this to doug but again it, it, i think it's just as relevant for for yuri to, to to pitch in on this so doug i think one of the things that um is a constant question that a lot of us get is uh, what are the main risk factors for exertional heat illness or exertional heat stroke so you've you've seen a lot of people um through your time working these races in different scenarios yuri as well um and so what are the top three characteristics that you often see or the uh, situations that you see people presenting to you with, with exertional heat stroke? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's imp really important for the discussion and for this audience. Um, so first of all, just as a bit of a background in America, um, American football and running, whether it be cross country running or road races or trail running, or whatever it is, are the two sports that have by far the greatest incidence of exertional heat stroke. And additionally, I've served as, as an expert witness on over 50 cases of heat stroke deaths um, almost all of them in the context of high school and college sports in America. 
So we learn a lot also when things go wrong, not just like the Falmouth Road Race scenario when things go right. So both of those situations, there's a lot to be gained. And if you, if I had to give it as a, as a top three, I will, number one, without question, it's the first three to five days of intense activity in the heat. So they're not properly acclimatized yet. Um, they're, they're just coming back to either conditioning practice or whatever it might be. Um, second factor um, would be um, the work, the intensity of the work is not matched to their current fitness status. Um, um, Dr. Moshi Ravacha from the Israeli Defense Force back in 2004 published, I think, a seminal work in this field where they looked at a bunch of deaths that took place amongst their warfighters um, in training and tried to identify what of a list of like 25 risk factors, how many of those were present um, at the time when that person died. And the one I just mentioned, physical activity not matched to the current fitness status of the person was the, the, the one of the best predictors. And the third would I, I would put as a kind of an amalgamation of a, a lot of things together. I call them like the X factors or individual factors. So it could be things like supplements, medications, or, or increased recent increased dosage of medications, recent illnesses coming back from injuries, um, some unique thing that happened in their life in the past couple of days. So those kind of things together, there's some X factor that when you learn about that instance in that person that you find out that something was different for that person recently. So, Doug, can I just ask a, a just a follow-up question with respect to medications? Because we had a question about that as well. Uh, are there specific medications that have made themselves evident among the people that, that you treat? Because you know there are some medications that are kind of anticholinergic. I think um, you know antidepressants, for example, um, and that's acting on the same apparatus as as the sweating system, of course. Yes, exactly. Do you see that? Yeah. So, and then also, I know Yuri. Um, I think you might want to add on an additional item to my three in a second here. Um, but yeah, so like in the supplement world, the military in America had seen a lot of problems when there was like ephedra-based um, items. So things that rev up your metabolic engine, right? You know, your um, core temperature probably rising at a faster rate because of those things. Also in America, a lot of people use um, either mood altering, like for anxiety or ADHD kind of medications. Um, and those seem to, um, even if it's small, seem to have some effect on the thermoregulatory system when people are doing intense exercise in the heat. So um, those are things that we kind of keep an eye out for. And the thing is that that would be um, probably the effects of those particular medications would be most evident during situations where people are exposed to these really quite severe, uncompensable heat stress situations and any kind of modification yeah. of your management of internal body heat content and or your ability to dissipate heat to the surrounding environment. Any kind of modification of that is really going to have quite multiplicative effects on, on the rising core temperature and the rate at which you rise as well. Exactly. Yeah. Picture like day two in American football, right? You have all this gear on really humid, yeah, right. really intense. And then you have this additional increase in dose of a medication. Yeah. Yeah. So Yuri, I think you've got something else to add as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I certainly agree with the three that Doug just mentioned, but I would say if I could add the fourth one, I would say uh, motivation and peer pressure that these athletes and even the laborers, for example, because, you know, these laborers who are working outside in the heat, they have, they don't really have a decision to stop. Um, similar with athletes, you know, if they're looking to win a gold medal, for example, they're not going to just stop because just because they feel unwell or they feel hot, you know, so that type of motivation and some of the cases that I've seen in Japan was more of a peer pressure. So say that there is a high school athlete, you know, from the ninth grade to 12th grade, for example, the lower classmen, you know, they wait for the upper classmen to finish taking their fluids. They are always looking for the coaches to give them the, um, the opportunity to take a break and so forth. So when it comes to this type of um, kind of like a military structure, but I think we see the similar kind of command kind of system in sports as well, where these athletes may not feel like, you know, they have the ability or they, they, don't, they feel like they can't stop on their own well. So stuff like that with the contextual item, motivation, peer pressure, I think, if we don't have that, I don't think we would exert ourselves to the point where we would have exertional heat stroke. So that internal motivation to just push ourselves, I think, is also a key factor. Ali, just to follow up quickly, just to show how she's spot on with that comment, is you think in America or anywhere, people doing training runs on their own all the time, um, they, they don't go out and do a training run one afternoon or evening and have heat strokes all the time um, because their body knows when it's getting hot, they feel those um, those warning signs and they either back off on the intensity or they change their, you know, they go from sun to shade or they go from running to jogging, whatever you do, you back off on your intensity to lower the rate of rise of your body temperature. Um, but once you put people in a race or you put people in a, uh, an American football practice 
um, versus just training on your own, then all the things that Yuri just mentioned now come into play. You have the coach and the teammates and other factors that influence your, your motivation. And, and I think that kind of um, phenomenon has been evident in, in quite a few settings. I, I remember when I was doing my PhD back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and one of my colleagues was doing work with the uh, the fire service. And, um, and, and I think that that type of um, culture, um, at least back then anyway, it really kind of um, really increased the, the level of, of risk of people ignoring those type of signals that under normal circumstances we'd listen to and we'd downregulate our activity. We might seek uh, um, uh, cool spaces or, or, or other kind of interventions, but because of these overriding, um, uh, with these various, various factors that lead to, I, I guess, effectively motivation, we kind of ignore those signals and, and then we place ourselves in harm, harm's way when normally we wouldn't do. Um, yeah, that's 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 really important. I, just just with respect to the, to the American football, so I know that you're 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 very familiar with that with that, Doug. Is um, in terms of 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 I, I guess you know tragically heat heat related deaths. Um, it feels as though just you know, off the top of my head, it seems as though they always occur during preseason training camps, early preseason training camps. Obviously, that's the hottest time of the year. But is that correct? Oh yeah, in fact. Um, I think I don't even know if there's ever been a death in a, an American football game, for instance, um, and they have some in practices, but they actually most a lot of them happen in the conditioning sessions as well. And like we said before, it's the first week usually um, that they're back. Um, so like in American football, high school football in America, it's often early August in that first you know bunch of days that they're back practicing. And I think we were mentioning uh, um, in, in a separate conversation, Doug, about how the uh, collective bargain agreement for NFL players now, um, at least, and I think that you, you mentioned that it's also it's true for NCAA teams and maybe even at the high I don't know about the high school level, is that there's a requirement now that it's mandated that they avoid two a day as they wear minimal protective equipment during the first few days. Can, can you just... Talk a bit about that, and and, and maybe and, and has has your research um, contributed to the changes in 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 those practices? Um, yeah, I would. I think we've uh, hopefully our research has helped a lot in that area. But we've also been very active, the Courage Training Institute, with the public health initiatives to try to um, truly move forward faster these policy changes. So NCA did it in two thousand three, but remember NCA only modified these August practice sessions for the start of American football practices they still have big problems with heat stroke in the other times of the year during conditioning sessions because they've not done a great job of regulating those kinds of practices. But in a high school American football, we've made great progress that almost all the states in the Southeast now in America, because each state regulates themselves, they have their own rules and governing bodies. Um, we've made great progress that they've almost all of them have heat acclimatization policies where they can't do two a days on the first five days. They're phasing in the amount of equipment, no two a days on successive days. Um, so just in the last but I don't know, 10 years since 2011 to now, I think we have over 30 states who've dramatically enhanced their high school football heat acclimatization policies. And, and associated with that, have we seen a reduction in the number of heat stroke instances and also heat related deaths? Uh, in the a great question. So deaths are probably somewhat similar, but it's so hard to know exactly because we don't know all the incidents. We have no way of knowing when a heat stroke takes place that is treated properly, right? So as we're making also a great progress with getting much better treatment happening everywhere, because um, most high schools now in America, between 75 and 80% of high school football programs have immersion tubs on site. And that's a, a dramatic increase because it was like zero just 20 years ago. Um, so now, thankfully, if a heat stroke does present itself, we're in a situation, hopefully a much better situation to treat it. I can tell you, Doug, that when I was a, um, at the Springfield High School um, in uh, Illinois, trying out for the high school football team in 1991 there were no uh, tubs with yeah. uh, cold water in them uh, during our training and we did two a day as well it was awful um <laughs> yes i don't that doesn't surprise me <laughs> um you know, i'd really like to, to talk about the, the second paper a bit more now uh yuri um i, I find this idea really fascinating um that the top method or the taco method as you as you refer to so just, just to give everybody a bit of a recap, um, can you just quickly summarize what the TARP method is and what circumstances you would use it relative to the type of interventions that Doug's been describing at, say, the Falmouth Row Race? Sure. So we, we call it a TACO method, TARP-assisted cooling method. Uh, we took the acronym and call it TACO. And it actually looks like the food TACO because we have the TARP and we 
place the person inside, we pour water and ice and voila, you have the taco method. Um, that looks like taco, but we're cooling the person. A, a preheated taco, yeah. Right, right. Um, and it came really from a practical um, viewpoint because if you think about the best case scenario, we would have a cold water, whole body cold water immersion tub. We obviously need a big tub and that needs to be set up and that is stationary thing, you know? So we would identify a location where it's accessible for many, say it's a high school or college um, athletic field. We have multiple teams practicing and they're all at risk because they're all playing under the similar environmental heat. And we need to, as an athletic trainers who are on site, who's covering these um, events, we need to identify a location where that makes the most sense for in terms of accessibility. Um, but when it comes to a large location or say that we're covering, um, say, trail run or road races uh, where we need to be kind of have a stations in multiple locations, we can't possibly have ice tubs in you know, every kilometer or so. That's just not feasible from the resources standpoint as well. So what if we could move that cooling resources to the person that has enough cooling capacity so that it could also save someone's life and get them away mm -hmm. from that dangerous um, hypothermic zone? So it, it's that simple. You know, If you're working clinically on site outside the hospital and thinking about the priority of, we need to somehow call this person effectively, uh, we need to, you know, minimize the amount of ice and water that we could carry. And also we need some sort of um, structure to hold the water um, surrounding yeah. the person. So I think the initial idea actually came from the military medicine. Uh, and now we see a lot of the similar practice in the EMTs um, and also in sporting field as well, where we where that location may not have a good setup for a stationary location for a cold tub or simply lack of budget. I mean, it's it's not that expensive, but for some schools, it's still expensive to um, purchase a tub for you know, two hundred dollars and they may have an issue with the storage as well. So given that all these uh, barriers that we saw in implementation, uh, we decided to well, let's make a very different version, but still has that similar uh, physics that we could use, you know, immerse the person yeah. somehow. So, so it still uses um, ice and water, of course. So you do have to transport that. But but you're talking about the quantities that you're using with the TARP method. Um, could you just give us some kind of reference? What kind of reduction in, let's say, ice and water you use with the TARP method relative to what you would use with a, a, a tub? Sure. So... Um, Doug, can you help me with the size of the tub that we usually use at Falmouth? Yeah, it, well, the one at Falmouth is kind of small, but the one you and I have used in a lot of like the videos and high school settings that we see are either the 100-gallon tubs or the 150-gallon tubs. Right. Um, and so, and that's quite a bit of water and ice that we need to my gallon to liter uh, um, conversion the knowledge isn't uh, what it should be done. Do you know how many liters that would be? <laughs> I, I don't. I'd have to do a quick The clash of cultures, eh? Yes. Sorry. Yeah, it's, only, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. Yeah. Okay. I'm not trusting you on conversions anymore after you took my 104 Fahrenheit and made it, and made it 42 Celsius. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, just if we talk about a fraction relative to that volume of that tub, Yuri, what kind of, uh, is it a quarter or a third half? Probably like a tenth or a tenth. Tenth, okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, yeah. to add on to what Yuri was saying, I think that's important is that this is a remarkably good cooling method when you're in remote settings or in settings where you, it's just not feasible to have set up a tub somewhere. You know, cross-country meet um, war fighters in different training scenarios, um, athletes in remote fields where they don't have access to the school, they're at like other parks. Um, so super important, but also it's in the military, they'll use it um, to cool while you're bringing them to definitive care. So you have them in a Jeep um, you know, in a medical tr a military transport vehicle and, you know, 12, 12 minutes later, you might be at the tub, but at least you're not losing those 12 minutes while you're, while you're transporting them. So, but the, the convenience um, accessibility does, I mean, you just need a cooler, ice, water, and then tarp and maybe some towels in there too. And anybody can have that. Like you can bring that in a golf cart, in a vehicle, and you can bring it anywhere and you, you really have good cooling. I mean, it's like two thirds as effective as cold water immersion. I think in the paper, um, the tarp assisted cooling paper, we used um, 10 gallon as a unit because that was what was practical for say us athletic trainers out in the field. If you can envision the bigger size um, water tank, 
that's usually a 10 gallon size. So we set that 20 gallons of water, so two big um, water jugs, and then one 10 gallon of ice, which is pretty common setup that we have anyway. Um, so we try to make this setup as practical as possible. So not really aiming for a certain temperature per se, but what's available out in the field and then did the math from there kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes, makes perfect sense. And I remember reading some of the earlier um, TARP work that came from Doug's group and and um, it, it's, it's one of the, the methods. So I remember the one I was, the paper was reading a while ago was kind of the idea that you, a, a person would take a corner each and then they would kind of slosh the water around and have the ice in there as well and then that helps cool by convection as well as conduction is is that is that, is that the is that the standard way of, of doing that method um yeah i would i would say um because there's only a few amount of water compared to the regular immersion tub i think adding that i mean conduction i think would have a greater effect than convection but having that extra convection i think would be a little bit more helpful given that smaller amount of water and ice we have because without it the gravity will spread the water kind of out away from the patient so you have to really hold up the tarp um, but there was an interesting um, study um, that was presented at the national um, NATA National Athlete Trainers Association symposia this summer um, I think it was actually from University of Buffalo's group they did a comparison between um, cold water immersion tub with stirring and no stirring. And they actually did not find any difference in that particular setup. Um, so it may be different depending on the amount of water. But given the my personal experience with the tackle, the water will spread with the gravity because we don't have that solid kind of wall surrounding that patient. So uh, I would say shuffle around a little bit so that you have the movement for that particular reason. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that's that's really important. And, and in terms of the the how widespread this method is now, Yuri, it's being employed in a range of different settings. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, within our athletic training, you know, network, uh, we've seen and heard of um, practitioners actually using it for that exact reason, a remote setting, or you know lack of space to store the tub, for example. Um, so we've heard success stories from that. Um, interestingly, um, in Japan, I think some, there are cases in the US as well, the EMTs. So the ambulance comes in and they have body bags or tarp, you know, waterproof, some sort of um, carriage that they could host a person in where they've decided to use that to give a pseudo kind of tackle um, cold order immersion tub set up as they transfer it to the hospital because now the EMT world is realizing that immediate cooling um, per ambulance is also important. So um, I've seen them implement that as well. Fascinating. You get you get pretty nervous if you see them bringing the body bag out, wouldn't you? I know. You, you need to clearly label, but yeah. Yes. Um, point, that's a, yeah, just um, don't lose any cooling minutes. You know, that that's the, the key thing with heat stroke care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, maybe this is one for you, Doug, even though the, actually the question is related to Yuri's paper and of, and of course uh, one of the main authors on that paper anyway. Um, so you have this kind of, um, I know, and I know you've got to draw a line in the sand somewhere, but you have this critical target cooling rate of 0 0.15 degrees Celsius per minute. Could we, could we just talk, talk about that for a little bit? Just, um, you know, uh, what, what's the origin of that of that threshold that you're looking for? Is that from modeling? Is it from just, um, is it empirical from the vast majority of the vast quantity of data that you have in, in people that you've treated? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it really just comes down to some just basic math, right? Because if, if the average start temperature, say, is like 41.8 to 42 degrees Celsius for this hundreds of heat strokes that we've treated, and we're trying to get them under the 104, I'm sorry, under the 40 degrees Celsius range. Um, and we, we, our goal is to do it within 30 minutes. So we, we just do the basic math out. Like how can we get down basically two degrees Celsius or 1.8 degrees Celsius or 1.5 at least, um, you know, within a 30 minute stretch, assuming that from the time of collapse, you're going to have five minutes of getting them to the medical area, getting their clothes off and, and getting the, the rectal temperature. So you might have this 25 minute window to work with. So that's kind of where it comes from. The TARP assisted cooling that Yuri mentioned um, we had like what 0.16 or 0.17 degrees Celsius per minute. Um, Brendan McDermott, who had done an earlier one that didn't have as much of the body cooling, was like 0.14. Our Falmouth work is about 0.22, 0 
But um, but we know from other uh, cold water immersion studies that if you have more of your body in aggressively cooling and the water's colder, it could be 0.25 to 0.30. So the cold water immersion cooling rates we have from Falmouth are really good for a field setting, but we know you can even do better um, if you even had some more ideal circumstances for cold water immersion. So kind of gives you the range um, where versus when I was in school, Ollie, in the 80s, my very first sports medicine class, they said to put ice bags on peripheral arteries. And that cooling rate, that cooling rate just, you know, is like 0.03 or 0.04, which is basically the same as passive cooling. Yeah, but Doug, they they, they still they're still saying a lot of people are still saying that kind of thing, and and this is this is this is why this work I think is you know is it's is particularly important. And that's why I have so much. That's why I have so much work as an expert witness because of that information yeah, that's yeah. being shared. With okay, so to that point, actually, Yuri. Um, so when when I when I when I talk to people about you know the the the, the reference standard what the what the, the the reference standard treatment of exertional heat illness people should be or heat people who suspect to have an exertional heat stroke, often people are very um, uh, surprised that aggressive rapid cooling is, you know, what we should be doing. And, and, and the, you know, the, the jury is no longer out on that. That is, it's very clear that that is what we should be doing. In your experience as a practitioner and working with a range of different kind of stakeholders, do you get a, any pushback on that? Kind of convent, there's a lot of conventional wisdom out there with respect to just generally in thermoregulation anyway, but, um, but, you know, we do a lot of work in the public health sphere here in Australia and with our colleagues internationally. And often we come up against a lot of these kind of conventional wisdom, old wives tale. Can, can, can you can you just talk us through that a little bit, your experiences and and and, and the kind of uh, the resistance that maybe you've had in trying to implement these um, these type of systems, you know, at the Tokyo Games, for example. So in Japan, you know, heat illness is common and I do a lot of lectures to high school coaches and high school administrators. Um, and when I tell them about if you are really suspecting the most severe form, form of exertional heat illness, which is exertional heat stroke, you really need to, you know, immerse a person and aggressively cool the, the, um, the student or a you know, student athlete. And their um, first one of the common questions I get is, well, that that's going to really like cause sudden cardiac arrest. You know, they're they're really scared for that. Um, different uh, phenomena to happen, but of the Falmouth data set has actually helped us a lot. But if the person has been healthy and has been just exercising until up to the point of collapse, you can assume that the person can withstand that stress from the cold induced. They're not going to have a cold induced shock. So when I give my lectures, I make it very clear that we're talking about exertional heat stroke, not classic heat illness or um, non-exertional heat illness that you might see in babies or elderly. So I make that clear, um, delineation very clear because some people, a lot of people actually, when they hear about heat illness, they usually think about um, classic heat illness if you're not really clear on that. So that's one question and um, concern, I guess, I get that a lot. Um, also um, in Japan, the water and ice is not as abundant as you would see in athletic field in the U.S. is what I've found out. So I find an ice chest and it only has like a bucket full, like literally like a handful of ice and that's it for the entire school. So lack of resources has been a major issue. But in that circumstances, I've also actually recommended them to use ice towels. So it's not as good as taco or it's not as good as cold water immersion tub, but it's also another way that you could cool the person's body as much skin area surface as possible at the same time. So lack of resources has actually been probably the biggest barrier um, outside of the taking rectal temperature um, is, you know, that's the top one for sure. But those are the ones that I usually get. So it sounds like um, trying to educating the people that, the, the people that you're trying to encourage to adopt these strategies is 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 the key kind of component really right right yeah because they also believe that okay let's put an ice bag you know under your armpit and they feel like that's fine you know that's the right way to do but if you really understand the amount of heat you could contain in your body it's it's not enough and they, they need to get educated on that 100 percent yeah, absolutely. Um, with respect to your paper, Yuri, one thing that I found quite interesting was during the, the discussion slide that you gave in your presentation that we posted is um, the, the, I was quite surprised to see that the individual with the largest body mass had the fastest cooling rate and then the person with the smallest body mass had the, the slowest cooling rate. Can um, do, how, does that, how does that align with the the other existing literature and 
can you maybe talk us through that a little bit? Because I think from a from a biophysical perspective, that some some people might be quite surprised by that by that observation. Yeah, um, I was actually surprised with the finding as well in terms of you know it like in terms of this you know simple calculation skin surface area and body mass and how much heat that person may contain. Um, you know it actually didn't align with my hypothesis either. Um, but at the same time, um, even outside the lab, say in Falmouth Road Race, you know, we have a fairly large person versus a small stature person. And do, can we predict the cooling rate? We really can't in actual setting. And I, I'm curious to hear what Doug thinks about this too. But I think there are other studies that actually, you know, investigated about um, you know, looking back from the body size and age and sex and all of that, can we predict the cooling rate? And there is really no linear um, association where we could specifically say that this person will have such cooling rate or vice versa. Um, and and so from the clinical standpoint, I don't know why, but it, it just it doesn't appear that way uh, when we when outside of the you know, simple mathematic equation and. Doug, do you agree that in actual setting, we don't always, um, I mean, there are a general trend, but sometimes it just doesn't appear that way. Yeah. So Ali, that was a great pickup that you noticed that and from our data and from the discussion, but at Falmouth Road Race and other places that I've been, there's no question that the smaller people um, cool the fastest, like our petite female distance runners. Um, like they literally sometimes can be in there for 10 or 12 minutes where, you know, other people might be in for 20 or 22 minutes or something like that. Um, so it didn't totally line up, but obviously it's always worth trying to figure out why that is. And it's probably fair to say that it just goes to show that, um, while you've got physical principles, there's a lot of uh, different factors at play here, right? You're measuring, you're measuring, ultimately you're measuring tissue temperature in one spot inside the body. And that's susceptible to things like changes in blood flow, um, uh, distribution of internal heat content, um, plus other things that are happening at the skin surface. Um, so, yes, you know, there's a lot of individual variability going on, isn't there? Yeah, especially with such a comparatively small end, right? You know, I mean, in one research study. Guys, it's been so great to speak to you about both of your papers and just broadly around the very important work that you've been doing in this area for the past 20 plus years. Um, you know, we've been talking for over an hour now, so we'll probably wrap it up. But before we do, is there anything, uh, any kind of take-home points, uh, Yuri, Doug, that you'd like our listeners to uh, take away from just from this area of research that you think are important for them to understand? I mean, I could start quick. I mean, just to show... For me, super proud to see the work Yuri's doing with the Tokyo Olympics because it shows like this massive path that we've been on. You know, these three big things, you know, getting an accurate core body temperature at the time of collapse, instituting a modality for cooling that has really effective cooling rates, and then instituting the cool first transport second. So we're minimizing the number of minutes of hyperthermia. You're like you mentioned earlier in this discussion, Ali, Yuri's taken all of these things and had to basically translate them to the practitioners there in Japan, because those three things that I just mentioned, those were not typically done by the medical community in Japan and still not done by a large you know, percentage of the medical community in America. But the data we have is driving policies and public health initiatives. And if we can do it effectively, we're, we're gonna save more lives. And to, to me, that's the, I mean, the whole story kind of coming together, which makes me you know, feel good that the work is, is beneficial and can have this great effect down the road. You know, a, a lot of people, a lot of people talk about research impact now, which is obviously a very important thing. I think this is a really nice illustration of of, of what research impact looks like. Sorry, you're you going to say. I 100%, 120% agree with what Doug said, because without all the, um, you know, knowledge that we've gained so far through observational studies and lab studies, there is no way I could have convinced you know, my peers about this whole concept, because again, this just was not done in Japan at all. Um, so it, it does feel nice to see our research actually come to translation. And now it's really, you know, now I had the chance to, you know, the Tokyo 2020 brought me the opportunity to talk about it. And so now it's the implementation. And once we have a success story now to the dissemination. So, so it, it'll be, I'm, I'm looking forward to see the next few years and how our medical um, professionals kind of change our viewpoint about exertional heat stroke pre-hospital care. And, you know, it is important to know about the basic knowledge and basic research, but at the same time, we always need to think about the application side of things. And Doug and I are both athletic trainers. So, um, 
that I think brings the uniqueness of, you know, KSI and the KSI trainees kind of research line that's a little bit maybe different from the pure physiology, you know, scientist standpoint. Absolutely. Brilliant. Okay, so I'll just uh, close now just by uh, thanking you both for uh, taking the time. Yuri, best of luck with the remainder of the games. Um, I'm sure Thank that you're you. going to be very busy. And thanks again for joining us on your uh, on your day off. And, and Doug, it's always a pleasure to uh, to chat with you. It's been a while since we've seen each other in person, but I look forward to us uh, being able to get together soon. It's really an honor. Thank you for inviting me. And Yuri, what a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. We'd also like to thank Stephen Goldsmith for assistance with audio production and Josh McCallum for assistance with branding and promotional design. We look forward to seeing you at the next episode.